Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shear, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this episode, we're continuing and concluding the tale of Cleopatra, so if you haven't listened to the previous episode, you should probably do that before listening to this one. We left off with Cleopatra as the most powerful person in Egypt, despite the fact that her kingdom is very much still beholden to the powers of the Roman Republic. She had ruled alongside her father and her two brothers, gone to war with one of those brothers, possibly killed the other one, and then had a child by the one and only Julius Caesar. Being in a position that overall should have been a bit good for her, Cleopatra found her world thrown into chaos when Julius Caesar was assassinated, and then, in her eyes, further disgraced by having Caesar not recognize their son, Caesarian, as his heir. That's a lot of ground to cover in your first 25 years of life. So where do we go in this episode? Well, obviously, we pick up in the aftermath of Caesar's assassination. Cleopatra played a somewhat active role in the Roman political and military world between Caesar's death and the rise of the first Roman emperor, Augustus. We'll also get her side of things during her relationship with Mark Antony, a member of the Second Triumvirate of the Roman Republic that we previously covered on the show. I also want to cover the things Cleopatra actually did for her nation during her reign. We spent most of last episode talking about her biography without actually talking about how she fared as a monarch. And finally, we'll just briefly get a glimpse into the state of Egypt as it gets brought into the fold of the newly flourishing Roman Empire. So without further ado, let's continue the story. We're picking up with Cleopatra in the aftermath of her late lover's assassination in The Last Queen of Ptolemy. <laughs> a background history lesson for this episode because it's part two of the story. If you need a refresher on where we are in the world, I recommend re-listening to both the previous Cleopatra episode as well as the episode about the second triumvirate. Rome was in a state of turmoil following Caesar's death. Strange alliances were being formed as the Republic was trying to decide how to survive with its leader dead, and the situation was further strained due to people's opinions on how to handle Caesar's assassins. After deciding that assassinating the dictator of Rome was bad, Caesar's assassins, often referred to as the Liberatores, fled to the eastern half of the Republic as a new civil war began brewing. Meanwhile, Cleopatra was back in Egypt. Technically, none of this was her problem. Why should she care about Rome when the last actions of the man she had been in a relationship with, the purported father of her child no less, were to ignore the bond the couple had shared? Caesarian would never get to live as the son of Caesar. But did that mean everything was bad? I mean, the kid was technically Cleopatra's co-ruler, even if he was only three years old when he was given the title. No one can really say for sure whether or not Cleopatra and Julius Caesar actually loved each other. There are people on both sides of the argument. It is kind of gross to think of a young woman in her early 20s being in a relationship with a man slightly over double her age. And I'm not saying I want her to have been, but it definitely makes the actions she'll soon take make much more sense. Although, in reality, it's probably because she wanted Rome to recognize Caesarian as Julius Caesar's legal heir, thereby granting Cleopatra further power and protection. In the build-up to the Liberator's Civil War, the war between the Liberatores and the Second Triumvirate, Cleopatra received letters from a man named Gaius Cassius Longinus, one of the Liberatores. This happened in 43 BCE, by the way. 
Cassius and his fellow assassins were hoping to get military aid from the Queen of Egypt. Cleopatra wrote back that she couldn't help out the Liberatores because Egypt was in a bad state of affairs and she couldn't risk further damaging it by joining in a civil war. However, Cleopatra had also been receiving letters from the governor of Roman Syria, who was anti-Liberatores and also requesting military aid. Firmly aligning herself with the pro-Caesar faction of the war, Cleopatra sent the governor several legions of Roman soldiers that had been a gift to her from Caesar. Well, they weren't really a gift, but that's not the point here. Along the way to Syria, Cassius' troops routed the legions in Roman Palestine and captured them. That's one hit against Cleopatra. Adding insult to injury, the queen soon learned that the governor of Cyprus, land she had only recently regained, meaning that the governor was one of her men, defected and joined the Liberatores. The Cyprian governor was supplying Cassius with ships for a naval attack. Not to be outdone, Cleopatra decided she would lend naval aid to the pro-Caesar faction of the Civil War, and the queen herself would be joining in the fray. However, a storm on the Mediterranean Sea damaged her fleet, making it so Cleopatra did not arrive in time to assist in the naval warfare around Greece. She would not take any further course of action for the rest of the Civil War. But once the Liberatores were defeated by the end of 42 BCE, another pair of eyes soon found themselves gazing upon Cleopatra. In the aftermath of the Liberators' civil war, the Roman Republic was divided among Octavian, Lepidus, and Mark Antony. Octavian got Western Europe, Lepidus got Northwest Africa, and Mark Antony got Eastern Europe and the Middle East. Considering that Egypt was technically within that last realm of power, Mark Antony decided he would like to meet with Cleopatra. But this wasn't a star-crossed lovers meeting. No. Antony wanted to meet with Cleopatra in order to figure out if she had betrayed Rome. Even though Cleopatra had very much not sent out those Roman legions to join Cassius's army, Cassius still ended up forcing them to join his side. From an outsider's perspective, it might have seemed like Cleopatra was attempting to bolster the armies of the Liberatores. To further complicate things, Cleopatra decided to ignore the letters Antony had sent asking for a meeting. Hey, Cleo, girl, that's not how you get powerful military men to trust you. I know you're the most powerful person in your nation, but still. It wasn't until Antony sent an actual human being with the message that Cleopatra decided to meet with the Triumvir. If you listened to the previous episode, then you may recall that this might not have actually been the first time the pair had met. When Cleopatra was younger, her father, Ptolemy XII, had been kicked out of Egypt. Cleopatra had joined him, including being by his side when Ptolemy had a Roman army help him retake Egypt. One of the soldiers in that army was Antony. Antony would even go so far as to say that he fell in love with Cleopatra during that time. In my usual style of pointing out disgusting age differences, Cleopatra had been 14 at that time. Antony would have been double that at 28. Truly no greater love story than that. Anyway, the next part of the story does become a bit more fairy tale romance. Cleopatra agreed to meet Antony in the city of Tarsus in the south of modern day Turkey. Antony had recently relocated the capital of his territories from Athens to Tarsus. 
According to the Roman historian Plutarch, Cleopatra sailed up to Tarsos in what was essentially the ancient Egyptian version of a yacht, her ship Thalamegos. Once in Tarsos, she invited Antony to join her for a multi-day dinner party where she could clear her name and the pair could further discuss the relationship between their territories. From here, the pair's meeting gets mixed up with all sorts of theological symbolism. As Queen of Egypt, Cleopatra had begun acting as the living form of the goddess Isis. Isis was often conflated with the Roman goddess Venus and the Greek goddess Aphrodite, and we don't have enough time to go into how those two goddesses are actually different and not just a copy and paste like most people think. On the other side of things, Antony was often paired with the Greek god Dionysus, and I'm not really sure how that adds to the narrative because, as far as I know, Dionysus and Aphrodite were never in a relationship. Maybe it's just the idea of two gods getting together that helps paint the narrative? Theological symbolism aside, the meeting goes very well, and Antony becomes enamored with Cleopatra. Was that part of Cleopatra's plans? Probably. So using her newfound relationship with Antony, Cleopatra makes just a simple, tiny request. She has Antony execute her younger sister Arsinoe for the latter's previous crime of attempting to usurp the throne from Cleopatra. And well, Antony complies. Goodbye Arsinoe, there's only room for one Ptolemaic queen in this story. I try my best on this show not to fall into the pitfalls of the sexism of older historians when discussing female rulers, so I'll come out and say this. Cleopatra was historically considered this great seductress who tempted the mind of Mark Antony with her beauty. In more recent years, it's said that Cleopatra was definitely more well known for her mind than her physical beauty. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if she was beautiful, intelligent, bold, or neither because she was the current queen of Egypt. Her nation at this point in history was struggling for survival under the weight of trying to avoid becoming a part of Rome while still relying on the Republic to keep Egypt afloat. So while Cleopatra and Mark Antony's love story probably was fueled by real romantic feelings, it should also be noted that Cleopatra, at least in the beginning, definitely planned on making Antony fall for her so she could gain more power. With that out of the way, let's continue their story. Antony arrived in Alexandria around November of 41 BCE, where he was to be Cleopatra's guest in her palace. He was met with great acclaim by everyone because he was a powerful Roman who was not actually there to conquer the nation. He ended up staying with Cleopatra until spring of 40 BCE. During that time, it's said that the pair engaged in many activities together besides the obvious parts of a relationship. Cleopatra was said to have enjoyed drinking, gambling, practicing military exercises, and going on hunting expeditions alongside her new boyfriend. But things couldn't stay peaceful and lovey-dovey for long. You see, Antony was married to a woman named Fulvia, who was not with her husband in Egypt. Fulvia wanted her husband to be the most powerful man in Rome, so she decided to wage a civil war against Antony's fellow triumvir slash rival Octavian. In order to keep the Republic at peace, Antony left Cleopatra in Egypt to help settle the war. Well, 
the war ended with Fulvia dead and Antony now married to Octavian's sister Octavia. Cleopatra was still in Egypt, and also pregnant with twins. She gave birth at the end of the year to a boy and girl named Alexander Helios and Cleopatra Cellini. Neither Cleopatra nor her children would see Antony again for the next three years. As a single mother of three children and queen of Egypt, Cleopatra began trying to bring her country back to its former levels of power. This put her at odds with King Herod of Judea. If you're familiar with the Bible, this is the same Herod from the Gospels that tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. At this point in history, Herod had recently been named king by Antony. Rome had made it a pastime to appoint local leaders within the Middle East who were loyal to them. Herod was one such case. Herod was caught up in a civil war, you know, as one does at this point in history. He fled from Judea and arrived in Cleopatra's court. She offered Herod aid, but the king in exile rebuffed her offers in order to seek aid from Rome. Cleopatra kept that in the back of her mind for a later date when she refused to give him further aid when Herod's civil war grew a bit more bloody. So now we can fast forward the three years I previously mentioned. In 37 BCE, Antony summoned Cleopatra to Antioch in Turkey in order to discuss the state of the eastern half of the Roman Republic. Though they had previously been lovers, Antony's marriage to Octavia, as well as the birth of their older daughter Octavia the Elder, was probably not sitting too well with Cleopatra. Nonetheless, she was a powerful ally in the east, so she agreed to Antony's summons. And she also brought her three-year-old twins along for the ride so they could finally meet their father. And guess what? Antony actually acknowledged them as his kids, making him at least better than Julius Caesar in that department. After many discussions and political meetings, Antony and Cleopatra agreed on a deal that could help stabilize the East. Basically, Cleopatra would receive a vast amount of territory that the Ptolemaic dynasty had once owned. This included much of modern-day Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Syria, and even parts of Crete. Technically, she ruled these lands in name only, with most of the territory having Roman rulers. But hey, she technically had the upper hand over King Herod when she leased him the city of Jericho. Yeah, not give, lease. By the end of the next year, in 36 BCE, Cleopatra had given birth to a second son by Antony, this boy named Ptolemy Philadelphus. Meanwhile, Antony was on a short-lived military campaign against the neighboring Parthian Empire. After a staggering defeat there and a visit from Cleopatra to help bolster morale, Antony decided that, instead of returning to Rome, he would join Cleopatra in Alexandria to meet his newborn son. But as the pair once more reignited their relationship, a shadow grew on the horizon in the form of Octavian's negative propaganda campaign. Despite being one of the most powerful men in the Republic of Rome, Mark Antony had become a controversial figure back home. He had abandoned his wife, who was the sister of his most important ally, and their children to live with a woman who was from a separate nation and culture. It was probably also around this time that Antony and Octavia unofficially got divorced and Antony married Cleopatra. For a Roman citizen, being Roman was everything. The ethnocentrism was very strong. 
While Egypt was certainly an interesting curiosity for the people of Rome, it would have been unthinkable to renounce being Roman to start living as an Egyptian. But that's exactly what Antony had done by moving in with Cleopatra. Then Antony did something that was essentially his version of Caesar crossing the Rubicon. In 34 BCE, Antony held a grand celebration in Alexandria to distract from his defeat against the Parthians. During the festival, he dressed up as an Osiris-Dionysus mashup, and Cleopatra dressed up as a mashup of Isis and Aphrodite. Caesarion, who was now 13 years old, was dressed as the Egyptian god Horus, the son of Osiris and Isis. It was at the end of the festival that Antony made a massive proclamation that had come to be known as the Donations of Alexandria. In the Donations, Antony declared that he would divide the eastern half of the Roman Republic among his and Cleopatra's children, where they would rule as kings and queens. He also bestowed upon Cleopatra the very fancy title Queen of Kings, which in my mind is just the bizarro universe of a Kevin James show. This title was very reminiscent of the titles once held by the Persian emperors and was meant to show a much higher level of authority than just the regular old queen. But the biggest announcement Antony made was when he declared Caesarion as the true heir of Julius Caesar. This is bad for many reasons. One, Octavian, Antony's fellow triumvir and overall powerful man in Rome, was already Caesar's legal heir. Two, Antony and Octavian are already in a rocky place because Antony's ex-wife had tried to kill Octavian. And three, by this point in time, Julius Caesar had already been deified, which would make Caesarion the son of a god. In a very stupid move, Antony had the donations of Alexandria written down and sent to Rome, where he hoped the Senate would approve of these proclamations. In what should surprise no one, the Senate refused to acknowledge the donations. Octavian, however, hoped that he could use these to his advantage in fueling a war of propaganda. He was prevented from sharing the donations with the citizens of Rome, but that did not stop Octavian from fully pushing forward with his attacks towards both Antony and Cleopatra. Octavian took to the streets to spread the news of Antony's fall from grace. He claimed that Cleopatra was practicing witchcraft and had used her magic to befuddle Antony into becoming her lover and slave. He led attacks on almost every aspect of her being. She was a drunk who partied too much, she was too masculine due to engaging in war, but also she was bad at strategy because she was a woman. She had stolen the happiness of his sister Octavia by stealing Antony and marrying him. Overall, Octavian made it very apparent that he wanted nothing to do with either Antony or Cleopatra. So, surprise surprise, in 33 BCE when it came time to decide whether or not to legally ratify the second triumvirate for another few years, the pair officially called it quits. It did not take much longer before the Roman Republic was once more thrown into war, this time against Egypt and Cleopatra. I already covered the final war of the Roman Republic in the episode over the Second Triumvirate, so let's do a very quick recap. In 31 BCE, Rome fell into a civil war. Go figure. Almost half of the Senate decided to support Antony and Cleopatra over Octavian. Antony, who was a soldier but not a naval commander by any means, decided to take the war to the Mediterranean Sea. Cleopatra joined him. Antony fumbled his way through the war effort, 
and Octavian further demoralized the Egyptian side by saying it was Cleopatra's presence that was causing them to fail. So, in order to avoid complete annihilation, Antony and Cleopatra retreated back to Egypt. They had the winter of 31 and 30 BCE to hunker down while Octavian gave his soldiers a break. The couple actually refused to speak with each other after the defeat. Cleopatra immediately returned to Alexandria, while Antony went off to Cyrene, which is in modern-day Libya but back then was Ptolemaic land. The couple suffered further defeats when their allies one by one defected to Octavian's side, including King Herod. Ancient historians say that at this point Cleopatra started doubting her loyalties to Antony. She began grooming Caesarion to become the sole ruler of Egypt and moved her private fleet of ships into the Red Sea so that she might have a way to travel further east if needed. Unfortunately, one of her many rivals in the Middle East burned Cleopatra's fleet, leaving her in Egypt. With nowhere else to turn, Cleopatra began considering the idea of cozying up to Octavian. She wrote him letters saying that she was considering relinquishing her title of queen and leaving Egypt to Caesarion. She hoped that Octavian would allow Antony to live in Egypt in exile. She also sent him a lot of gold as an incentive. Octavian sent a diplomat to Cleopatra, who suggested to the queen that she kill Antony in order to save her own skin. Well, Antony caught word of this and had the diplomat whipped before sending him back to Octavian, ruining any hopes of peace between Cleopatra and Antony's rival. Then, after Octavian marched on Egypt and further defeated Antony's armies, Cleopatra decided to pull an Act 5 of Romeo and Juliet. Spoiler alert ahead for Romeo and Juliet, I guess. She hid herself away in a tomb and had a letter sent to Antony saying she had killed herself. Upon reading the letter, Antony stabbed himself. As he was dying, he was reportedly brought to Cleopatra's side. Kinda messed up thinking the love of your life had killed herself, so you try to kill yourself, only then to find out she's still alive and see her in the last seconds of your life. But yeah, I guess that's love for ya. No wonder Shakespeare wrote a play about them. Octavian laid siege to Alexandria and took Cleopatra's three children by Antony hostage in order to force a meeting with the queen. When she did decide to finally meet with the conqueror, it said that Cleopatra's exact words were, I will not be led in a triumph. Okay, those weren't her exact words because she didn't speak English, so they were Uthriambevsume. Cleopatra did not want to be shown as a prize like her younger sister had been when Caesar had helped Cleopatra gain the throne of Egypt. Octavian said he would honor her word, but that did not stop Cleopatra from hearing rumors that Octavian was planning on relocating the queen and her children to Rome. In late August of 30 BCE, Cleopatra hid herself away with several attendants and killed herself. Her exact means of death is unknown. The most popular story goes that she used an asp, a type of snake, to poison herself. Other stories say different types of snakes or different means of administering poison. All history tells us is that Cleopatra's doctor did not give an exact cause of death, but there were supposedly puncture marks on her arm. So my guess is an ancient Egyptian vampire. Octavian had Cleopatra buried in a royal tomb, as was appropriate for an Egyptian queen. And here's a fun bit of trivia. 
We don't know where Antony and Cleopatra were buried. Even to this day, we have yet to find any evidence of their tomb. There has been plenty of efforts made, but all have come up short. With Cleopatra gone, Egypt looked to one last hope for its survival, Caesarian. In the days leading up to her eventual suicide, Cleopatra had sent her oldest son further south to seek shelter from Octavian. He stayed in hiding for a little over two weeks before returning to Alexandria, believing that Octavian would actually allow him to be king. Well, apparently Octavian received advice from one of his friends that there should only be one Caesar in the world, and it definitely wouldn't be Ptolemy Caesar. So on August 29th, 30 BCE, Octavian had Caesarian killed. He was only 17 years old. As for Cleopatra's three younger children, the children of Mark Antony, Octavian had them shipped off to Rome to march in his military triumph. Some historians say that Ptolemy Philadelphus, Cleopatra's youngest son, did not survive the trip to Rome. Some say that all three children marched in triumph, while others say only the twins Alexander and Cleopatra Cellini. Whichever number of children did actually make it to Rome were then left in the care of Octavian's sister Octavia, the former wife of Mark Antony. She reportedly raised them with a good Roman education. It's from here onward that the sons of Cleopatra disappear from history. As I said, Ptolemy Philadelphus might not have even made it to Rome. Alexander Helios just is basically never mentioned again. As for Cleopatra Cellini, she was eventually married off by Octavian, at this point Emperor Augustus, to the Roman client King Juba of Mauritania. She became a queen at the age of 15 and ruled for 20 years until her death in 5 BCE. She would be the last ruler of the Ptolemaic bloodline. As for Egypt itself, Octavian was proclaimed the new pharaoh, though he never truly acted as if he held the title. From then on began the process of having every Roman emperor also gain the title of pharaoh of Egypt. But despite his distancing himself from the position of pharaoh, Emperor Augustus still kept Egypt in a special position. When the Roman Republic became an empire, Egypt was kept out of becoming a province. It was a territory that he personally controlled without any interference from the Roman Senate. He would even go so far as to name his own governors to rule over the land. Nonetheless, the great kingdom of Egypt had changed. A ruling dynasty that had traced itself back to the conquest of Alexander the Great had ended. Egypt, like so many other powers in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, had fallen under the powers of Rome. Now that we've concluded the story of Cleopatra, let's take a look at her reign of Egypt. She inherited an Egypt that was deeply in debt due to the actions of her father. Because of this, she had to play around with the economy in order to keep her nation afloat. She debased the value of Egyptian coinage, gold was no longer used to make coins, and silver prices plummeted. Also, she brought back copper coins, which had been absent since the reign of her grandfather, Ptolemy IX. One final note on currency. She was the first non-Roman queen to be depicted on Roman currency, where one side showed Antony and the other side herself. As pharaoh of Egypt, Cleopatra was also the religious leader of the nation. 
she led worship and ceremonies to both Egyptian and Greek deities. She is depicted in Egyptian art often in styles comparing her with the goddess Isis, as well as the Egyptian goddess Hathor. Alongside these depictions were usually Caesarian as her co-pharaoh, sometimes portrayed as the god Horus. There are even some Egyptian artistic pieces from this time period that represent Julius Caesar as the god Amun-Ra, the chief deity of Egypt during that time. Also, in accordance with the rules set out by Julius Caesar, Cleopatra granted asylum laws in Egypt for Jews. She also ordered a synagogue to be built in Alexandria. After the death of Julius Caesar, Cleopatra built a temple dedicated to the father of her first son, the Caesarium of Alexandria. However, the temple was never finished during her lifetime and would be completed by Emperor Augustus. Two massive obelisks that were part of the temple built by Augustus, which are called Cleopatra's Needles, still stand today, albeit in two completely different locations of New York City and London. Besides temples and other religious laws, Cleopatra had to spend quite a bit of her rule rebuilding the city of Alexandria. After her civil war with Ptolemy XIII and Arsinoe, much of the city was ruined, including the Lighthouse of Alexandria and the gymnasium where soldiers trained. Also, it should be noted that under Cleopatra, much of the land that the Ptolemies had lost over the previous century of Ptolemaic rulers was given back to the dynasty during her rule, including the expansion of some territories that were held by dynasties that had married into the Ptolemies. Who knows what else Cleopatra could have achieved if she hadn't lived a life constantly thrown into civil wars. Personally, I believe she would have continued to amass territories once held by Egypt, and even lands further beyond. This, however, would have also led to war against Rome. Even with that much more territory and power, I unfortunately don't think Cleopatra could have won. So it's with a heavy heart that I say I think Cleopatra was always destined to lose to the new empire. And thus ends our two-parter over the last queen of the Ptolemaic dynasty. I do feel kind of bad about focusing so much on Rome when covering an Egyptian leader, but Cleopatra was obviously very embroiled in the end of the Roman Republic. And yet, there are historians out there who think we shouldn't elevate Cleopatra to as high of a position as we have. True, her personal military affairs were a bit lacking, but she found a way to attempt to ingratiate herself and stand up against the bulwark of Roman expansion that previous Ptolemies had not. If history had gone another way, it's entirely possible that she could have ended up ruling alongside Mark Antony as the first empress of Rome. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and subscribe to the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're taking another trip to the Vatican for a very strange story of a trial that transcends the borders of life and death. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, whoa, whoa.